Thank you, Adam. It's good to be back. Um, Jackie and I were on a 19-state, 9,000-mile road trip over seven weeks, and we spent 16 days, or nights, I should say, in our own van. We had a mattress in the back of our Honda Odyssey, and we, we went up through Atlanta, where I had a speaking engagement, into the Dakotas, and then down into Colorado, New Mexico, and then we hit Nevada, which is our 49th state, so we just have Hawaii left to go. So uh, anyway, that was a, a grand uh, grand adventure, and so we're uh, glad to be on it, but also glad to be back with you here at Lake Osborne. Uh, thanks, Adam, for asking. Always uh, a pleasure and privilege to be uh, uh, in partnership with uh, your work and the work here at Lake Osborne. <clears throat> Well, we have a challenging passage before us here from the Sermon on the Mount on loving our enemies. And so let's uh, give heed to uh, the word of the Lord, uh, the words of Jesus in the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. A few years back, you may may remember the Chick-fil-A Fuhrer, the controversy, uh, a traditional Christian-based organization holding to a traditional-slash-biblical understanding of marriage, Uh, and gay activists being opposed to this organization that was so-called bigoted, uh, narrow-minded, and many many of these activists were boycotting Chick-fil-A, and of course many people who were in support of Chick-fil-A were uh, were standing in long lines to get their uh, amazing Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Well, Shane Windmeyer, who was a gay activist, wrote scathing comments about Chick-fil-A. And the president of Chick-fil-A, the CEO, Dan Cathy, wrote a letter to him, got in contact with Shane, and they started a friendship. Uh, In fact, there was a, I guess on January 1st, they have a Chick-fil-A bowl, and he you know, Shane Windemeyer ended up hanging out with Dan Cathy's family, and he had got he has gotten to know them, and he came out in the Huffington Post saying that he was a friend of Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A. He said, I'm a little nervous about saying this, but he reached out to me, and he showed love and kindness to me. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. 
doing good to those who persecute you, breaking that vicious cycle, that chain uh, that just keeps on going unless somebody steps in and does something to break that pattern. Perhaps we've feel, you know, Jesus talks about being persecuted. Maybe some of us feel like, well, I've been persecuted on Facebook. You know, I was unfriended by someone because I made this or that statement. And, and of course, you, you, you take that in stride. These aren't necessarily people who are persecuting us. But uh, Jesus is talking to those who are going to be under fire for their faith, uh, who are going to be uh, challenged uh, by even physical threats. In an earlier sermon, uh, Blessed Are the Merciful, uh, I mentioned that the Sermon on the Mount's theme is that disciples are different. Disciples are different. Uh, and when we look at something like love your enemies, do good to them, to many readers that might look crazy, what looks outrageous to the rest of the world is what Christ calls us to as his disciples. Now, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of us may think that, wow, how can I ever be acceptable before God? Because this is so challenging, so penetrating, so uh, it, it runs so contrary to the way that my normal mindset operates. And as we said before, this is not a manual on how to be accepted before God. It's already written to people who have been accepted by God based on what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. So don't read through the sermon and think, okay, this, I'm going to do these things because I'm going to be accepted before God because of this. Rather, Jesus is already talking about your heavenly Father and so forth. There's already the assumption that you've been accepted here. But it's not based on our own merits, our own performance, but based on what Jesus Christ himself has done. But when we understand that and we see what the Sermon on the Mount is about and its transformative power, we realize that there is something that God wants to do in all of us. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, you know, who was executed under Hitler, actually, uh, he tells of the transformation that he experienced when he read the Sermon on the Mount. He said before he had read it, he said, I was lacking in humility, terribly ambitious. Then something happened. For the first time, I discovered the Bible, and the Bible freed me from that, in particular, the Sermon on the Mount. Since then, everything has changed. I have felt this plainly, and so have other people around me. Even someone like Mahatma Gandhi, uh, the founder of uh, the modern state of India, uh, said that when he read the New Testament, it, he said it produced this amazing impression, he said, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which went straight to my heart. There's something very penetrating about the Sermon on the Mount. And many people see the Sermon on the Mount as this remarkable ethical ideal. But a lot of people have also concluded that the Sermon on the Mount, because it seems like such an impossible ethic, that it's just not practical. It is just not attainable. I mean, look at this final verse that we just read. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, how discouraging is that? Uh, that can lead to great despair, perhaps. I'll never get there, so why bother even trying? But as it turns out, as we look more closely, 
we see that Jesus is actually giving us highly practical guidance. And I trust by the end of this sermon, you will say, oh, you know, I can become perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. So you might think, oh, he's going to say something heretical. I just know it. But no, actually what we'll see is that Jesus is giving us steps to take that we can love as our heavenly Father loves. So let's stay tuned and unpack this text. What we want to do is look briefly at the structure of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And then we want to look at what hating enemies is all about. Then we'll talk about what we can call the vicious cycle. And then finally, the transforming initiative that Jesus is talking about. So the structure, hating enemies, the vicious cycle, and the transforming initiative. First, a little bit about the structure and what Jesus means in a few, in a, in a few verses previous to this when he talks about this surpassing righteousness. In verse 20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, these scribes and Pharisees are the ones who are experts at keeping the law. They are even tithing, giving a tenth of the herbs in their gardens, mint, dill, and cumin. I mean, how specific is that? Lord, I'm going to give a tenth of all that I have, including the herbs in my garden. That's it. Yeah, just you can remember that. It's Matthew 23, 23. Uh, that's where Jesus talks about that. You say, wow, if I'm, how is my righteousness going to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees if they're doing everything so meticulously? Ah, that's where we come to uh, the next uh, step. Uh, Jesus tells us, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, that is, this is how the religious experts have interpreted and applied this law. But I'm going to show you something better. Now, a lot of people see this as, you know, Jesus saying, you know, this is the bad stuff, but here's the good stuff. This is what I, this is where I want you to go. And so they see it in a twofold pattern, but I want to do, what I want to do is emphasize, and this is not original with me, a threefold pattern that I think helps illuminate this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. The idea here is that Jesus is saying, this is the traditional way the religious, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees have interpreted this text. And here is a pattern that people can get into that really they're kind of stuck in. And what I want you to focus on is applying a new pathway, building a new pattern so that you can break that kind of vicious cycle. So there's a traditional piety or righteousness. There's a vicious cycle or pattern. And then there are certain specific commands that help to undercut or break that vicious cycle so that you might be transformed, that we might be transformed. How does that work? Well, let's just go back a little bit to, uh, to don't murder. The outward act. I'm not murdering. I'm doing great. I'm keeping this commandment. Well, Jesus is saying, no, you're not. He's saying, if you're holding this bitterness in your heart, if you're saying, that person's a jerk, a fool, a blockhead, you're 
you're, you're committing murder in your thought, in your mind. It's not the exact same thing. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus isn't saying, you know, getting, holding a bitter spirit is the, identical to murder. Jesus is not saying that because there are degrees of sin in Scripture. Jesus tells Pilate that the, the Jewish leaders have committed the greater sin. So Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that not that, uh, that a, this hateful anger and murder are equally, you know, that they're, they're equally sinful, but that they are both sin. <laughs> Don't think, oh, I'm off the hook because I haven't physically murdered anyone. No, Jesus is, is mentioning something deeper than that. But the problem is we get, we get angry, we say things that we regret later on, and then what do we do? We just keep on repeating those things. We keep on doing those things. But what Jesus focuses on is he's saying, okay, when this happens, what you do. If there's something that you know, your brother has against you or you have against your brother, he gives certain commands, certain concrete commands. He says, you know, if you're going go to you know, go to a church service, put your money in the offering plate, he says, first, you know, leave, <laughs> go to your brother. You know, you, know, you know, be reconciled and then offer your gift. And it goes on to say, make friends quickly with your accuser and so forth. So rather than just allowing that vicious cycle to continue, concrete commands are given. Break that cycle. Go to your brother. Do something about it. The same thing with lust. That same pattern continues. Uh, Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Oh, I'm doing great because I haven't physically committed adultery. No, Jesus is saying uh, you know, that, that there's something even deeper going on here. And he talks about lust. There's no command here, but there's that vicious cycle. And a lot of people in our society are trapped in this vicious cycle. So what does Jesus say? He says, take ruthless action. Be, be accountable. Do something. Take radical action. He says, you know, if your hand you know, causes you, to, if your eye causes you to sin, take it out. Throw it away. The emphasis on these commands. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. Take radical action. Again, these aren't literal commands. I mean, you can only cut off your right hand once. And then what are you going to do? But Jesus is saying, take radical action to avoid those causes of temptation. Take positive steps and preventative measures uh, so that you don't go down that path of pain and guilt and so forth and, and to you know, living a life of it's just kind of a mere existence of kind of a, you know, a, a, a living death, as it were. So this is what the transforming initiative is about. So as we look now, having that, a little bit of that background, let's look at the traditional teaching related to you know, loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. And then we'll unpack this uh, text. So you have a little bit of the background, the traditional teaching, the vicious cycle, and then the transforming initiative. When we come to this text, it says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Where did that come from? That's not in the Bible, is it? Well, we do read in Psalm 139, for example, where David is saying, don't I, don't I hate those who hate you, O Lord? Don't I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. That's the Bible? Well, some people might say, oh, yeah, there's my justification right there. There's David saying those things. Well, what does that even mean? 
What David is upset about is that God, who has made a covenant with his people, is, you know, you know he, is, he is upset because there are people who are violating it, going after other gods, that they are, uh, they are hating God by joining themselves to idols. And this is exactly what the language of you know, Hosea is, or, or, or sorry, Malachi, where, you know, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. You know, God chooses one over the other to be his people who are to be a channel of blessing to the rest of the earth. In fact, Jesus even uses this language of, 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 of allegiance to one over against the other. Uh, in, uh, in Luke 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? Jesus said that? But doesn't he say elsewhere, like in Matthew 15, to, to love your, you know, and honor your father and mother? Yes, he does. But the point here is, is that there is a matter of allegiance here. Who is going to get my heart allegiance, my loyalty? Is it going to be fundamentally, well, I'm going to do what my parents say. I grew up with this, and if I follow Jesus, then I'm going to make my parents upset. A very real thing in Jesus' day and in Muslim and Hindu cultures and, and so forth today. But in a parallel passage in Matthew 10, 37, it's clarified. Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than he loves me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So it's a matter of allegiance. With whom am I going to align myself? So when David says, don't I hate those who hate you, he has this covenantal loyalty language in mind. He's, he's not going to align himself with those who are hating God, who are aligning themselves with a foreign deity, those who are faithless, those who oppose God. But David is saying, Lord, I'm opposed to those who oppose you. I'm opposed to those who, you know, I, I'm, I'm for you. <laughs> I'm in, I want to be in line with your purposes. But David also goes on to say at the end of Psalm 139, where that passage uh, comes from, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. So when, we are, when, we, when there is that righteous indignation, be careful that it doesn't spill over into hatefulness, bitterness, animosity, and so forth. So search me, O Lord. So that's the traditional righteousness where people you know, say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Some people might say, oh, look at David. But keep also in mind that in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, 36 times there is mention of loving the alien who is in your midst. Why? Because you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. So there you have over and over again, not just loving your fellow Israelite, but also loving the alien in your midst. Well, here's the vicious cycle. Let's move on to that from the traditional righteousness to the vicious cycle. Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? As I said, the mindset in, you know, amongst the religious leaders was highly nationalistic. 
They didn't even want the the Gentiles to come into the temple to worship in the court of the Gentiles, where, remember, Jesus drove out the money changers. Why? Because they were setting up tables where the Gentiles were supposed to be praying in this court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus said, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of, and the word is, you know, looks, you know, sometimes robbers is the translation, but it's more like insurrectionists, nationalists, people who want to overthrow Rome, people who are so preoccupied with their own national identity that they've forgotten that this Abrahamic blessing is to be for all peoples, that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They had forgotten their mission. They had forgotten that they were called to be a light to the nations. So the Gentiles... Also think of the t- those tax collectors, those tax gatherers who were considered slimy, greedy compromisers with the Roman Empire. I mean, they weren't Gentiles, but close enough. Uh, they were part of the IRS, the Israelite ripoff service. Now, the tax collectors would receive com- some commission from the taxes they gathered, but typically they extorted money from people, and they weren't well-liked at all. And Jesus is saying, look, the Gentiles that you don't want to associate with, those tax collectors that you don't want to associate with, you know what? They love each other. They hang out with each other. They greet each other. So if you are just greeting those who greet you, you're just nice to those who are nice to you, well, what's the big deal? What's the reward in that? What's the benefit of that? What is, your, what is so special about your religion? When that happens, it's hardly a mark of spiritual achievement. I mean, you know, talk, apply it to the mafia. You know, if you belong to a certain mafia family, yeah, they're going to greet each other and kiss each other on the cheek. And well, yeah, you, you're going to expect that of criminals today. What about us? What kind of vicious cycles are we in? Maybe we've been offended by uh, someone and haven't spoken to that person ever since. What if you disagree with someone politically? Does that justify your cutting off the relationship? What are our vicious cycles? What are those patterns? And who is going to break that pattern if not you? That is what God calls us to do. And so here we come to the transforming initiative. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Rather than making our feelings and hurts the default mode, we need to begin to think theologically about this. That is, what is God's view on the matter? How does God think about and act toward his own enemies? Well, here are a few thoughts to ponder. For one thing, Jesus doesn't tell us to just snap out of it and pray for and do good to your enemies. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's sort of like the parent who says when her child asks why, the parent replies, because I said so. This doesn't give the child any rationale or justifiable reason for acting in a certain way. Just sounds arbitrary and is very confusing. 
But when wise parents will explain to their children, insofar as they're able to understand, age-appropriate and so forth, the reason for why they're being told to do that, then they can move forward with greater confidence. Oh yeah, I understand now why I'm told to do that. And here Jesus is actually giving to us a rationale. Well, what is that rationale? Well, secondly, God pours out his general blessings on his friends and his enemies. One reason for loving our enemies is because God already does this all the time. And Adam was earlier speaking about the common grace that God has shown to us here in this nation, but more generally uh, throughout the world. God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and sunshine on the evil and the good. God isn't picky with these general blessings. You're going to get this over here, but not you, you bad guys over there. God shows love to his enemies, not just his friends. Now, some of you think, well, you know, that doesn't really speak to me, you know, that rain, sunshine stuff. We get a lot of it in Florida, it's that sunshine. Um, you know, in some places, like maybe Seattle, where you have rain all the time, some people might think, you know, this rain is pretty depressing. Uh, they want sunshine. Uh, remember, maybe you remember uh, the, the group, the Carpenters, a uh, brother and sister singing duo, and, and, uh, you know, and the, they, they sang this song about how rainy days and Mondays always get me down. Well, in Israel, rain meant life. Rain meant growth. Rain meant sustenance. Rain was a great blessing in Jesus' context. And even for those folks in Seattle, when the sun does actually make an appearance there, uh, the residents can receive this as a gift from the Lord, his common grace. And so this common grace can actually instruct us to love friend and enemy as well. That said, it doesn't mean that we don't have special responsibilities towards, say, our own families or towards fellow believers. I mean, Paul says in Galatians 6, do good to all but especially those of the household of faith. There's a certain covenant relationship that we have with one another in the body of Christ. But another point needs to be made here, and this uh, focuses on more a special or particular grace, that Christ died for his enemies to turn them into friends. Christ died for his enemies to turn them so not only is there that common grace where God shows, our Heavenly Father shows kindness to his friends and enemies through rain and sunshine and other gifts, but Jesus comes to die for the enemies of God in order to reconcile them to God. That's what Romans 5, 6 through 11 talks about, that while we were enemies at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In fact, there's a list of things. There are four descriptors of those for whom Christ died. Sinners, the ungodly, the helpless, and enemies. Quite a list there. That's what, that was our condition. Helpless, we need God's grace. You know, sinners, we need to be redeemed. You know, we're ungodly, we need to be right with God. We're enemies, we need to be reconciled to God. So what happens when we do good to our enemies, just as God does for the unrighteous, the evil, his enemies? People will see that we resemble our Heavenly Father. They will say, this is a person. You, know, you will be recognized as 
children of your heavenly Father, that we resemble him. You know, we talk about, you know, whom does this uh, little baby favor, the mother or the father? Well, whom do you favor? Do you favor your heavenly Father? Or do you favor the pattern of the world where you just greet, like the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, just greeting those who greet you and being kind to those who are kind to you? Which brings us to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, rather than falling into despair and saying, oh, how unrealistic this is, what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is this. He's saying, rather than having a half-baked love where you just love those who love you, have a full, complete, perfect love just like your heavenly Father does, who loves not only friends, but also enemies. That is what it means to love perfectly. In fact, in the parallel passage of, of, you know, in Luke chapter 6, this is what Jesus says, Luke 6, 35 and 36. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful. Here we've just read be perfect, but here it says be merciful just as your Father is merciful. That sheds some light on what it means to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, doesn't it? Have that full, perfect love, that enemy love that is characteristic of God, and you will resemble him. Well, how do we think through this in practical ways? Let's offer a few thoughts regarding the application of this text to us. I think in the first place, uh, sometimes when we think about our enemies, it's very easy to put them into the other camp. But a lot of times people who have been, maybe they're hostile to us for a certain reason. I find that when I speak on university campuses, when I talk about God, I talk about Jesus, some people will get angry when you bring up God. And there may be reasons for that. I found that a lot of times people with who, who get angry when I start talking about the gospel are people who have had negative to non-existent relationships with their own father figures. There's been a bad example. They have, they've had a, an unreliable, negative authority figure in their lives. And maybe it sometimes it comes in a church setting too. And so there's a certain suspicion that people have. And so there's been a kind of a hurt. In fact, when you look at the world's leading atheists, kind of the, you know, you think of you know, people like Bertrand Russell and, and, and others who have been leading atheists, one thing that they have, many of them have in common is that they have not had a, a good father figure or father substitute figure in their lives. Uh, one psychologist from New York University, Paul Vitz, uh, has written a book called Faith of the Fatherless, where he talks about people who have had these negative experiences with fathers, and so it makes it difficult to trust a heavenly father. It's actually getting things reversed, isn't it? 
We should take our cues from a heavenly father as the model rather than saying that my earthly father is the model for what fathers are. And I'm not going to, if that's what a father looks like, I'm going to reject a heavenly father. No, it, it should be the other way around. But it's helpful to know that there may be some hurts behind the animosity and lovelessness that people show toward us. So keep that in mind as, you know, you know, maybe someone is your enemy. Well, maybe there's a lot of hurt in that person's life. Sometimes it's necessary to keep a distance, too. Uh, sometimes there can be toxic people, people who bring damage to our lives, people who send our lives into upheaval, and so we need to create certain boundaries. This also has application in a church setting. There is a place for church discipline. And when you read the New Testament, you see that there are three major areas where church discipline is required. The first has to do with sexual immorality, gross sexual immorality. Secondly is doctrinal deviation. And then the third is a loveless divisiveness, someone who is creating division. Well, church discipline is necessary. If that person does that, you talk to them, bring two or three, if that, others, if that, two, two or three, if that doesn't work. And then finally, you may have to just say, you're not, you cannot come here until you get things right with God. Bring things a little closer to home. Do we, even, you know, maybe there's not somebody out there, but maybe somebody a little closer to home. Uh, maybe there's within our own circle, maybe friend or relative, um, we've allowed a grudge to fester. There's a cold silence, maybe in a marriage. Who's going to take the initiative, if not you, a disciple of Jesus Christ? This vicious cycle has gone on long enough. Please forgive me if there's anything that needs to be forgiven. I want to know about it, and I offer forgiveness to you. Just like Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the first step. You may not be reconciled to someone even, but at least you're opening yourself up to that possibility by saying, I let go of this. I'm not holding this against you any longer. That's what God does. We may feel highly justified in holding a grudge, but, so, but if we understand that God is the one who has broken into our world, who has, you know, in a sense, broken the vicious cycle so that we might be reconciled to God, how much more should we because we stand in great debt to that God who has broken through into our world and loved his enemies. Maybe in the workplace, there may be some difficulties that you might be experiencing. My wife and I were recently uh, traveling, as you've just heard, and we were visiting a friend, and she's going through a very difficult time with a colleague at work who wants to, you know, even though she's less qualified than our friend to make medical judgments, she is still uh, you know, acting as though she knows better and she tries to put this person, you know, our friend down and so on. So it's been very difficult. And she and our friend, however, wants to respond with kindness rather than trying to just sit, rather than just contributing to that vicious cycle that continues. You got an enemy like that? Put him at the top of your prayer list. Start there. Lord, work in that person's heart. Lord, show me how I can show kindness to that person in concrete ways. I remember a, a friend of mine in high school, um, he and I went to the, the, the same church and he was talking about having a grudge 
against someone and talk to the pastor about it. And the pastor said, well, have you prayed about that person? Have you prayed for that person? You know, and he was a little grouchy about it. You know, well, come on, that sounds so pat. Well, no, that's exactly where to begin. And as you start to pray for that person, you say, you know, there's, there's a, a, a deepened compassion, a deepened spiritual concern for that person. That person, too, might be reconciled to God. There's an agnostic historian by the name of Tom Holland, uh, who's written a book recently called Dominion, but he wrote an article, uh, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. This is an agnostic, doesn't identify himself as a Christian in any, quote, religious way. But this is what he says as a historian. He says, the longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, you know, the Greco-Roman world into which Jesus came, <laughs> The Greco-Roman world, he said, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. As such, the founding conviction of the age of reason, the Enlightenment, that it owed nothing to the faith into which most of its greatest figures had been born, increasingly came to seem to me unsustainable. We preach Christ and him crucified, St. Paul declared, under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. He was right. Nothing could have run more counter to the most profoundly held assumptions of Paul's contemporaries, Jews or Greeks or Romans. The notion that a God might have, have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. <clears throat> Familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two-millennia-old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all. But, and here coming from an agnostic, thoroughly and proudly Christian. Notice what's going on here. In Christ, God broke that vicious cycle of human sin and guilt. He took the initiative, and rather than punishing us, he took the punishment for his enemies. He prayed for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this radical act transformed people back then. And it has had the ripple effect that has shaped our own Western civilization, which emphasizes human rights, crimes against humanity, democracy, and so forth. Even though its influence, as we just heard, is fading. What Christ did for the world indeed for Western civilization and other pockets in the world. Whether there is direct animosity or perhaps 
maybe even in our own relationships where we've been hurt and we don't want to be the first one to break that vicious cycle. But again, remember, Jesus said, what are you doing more than anybody else? If that's just, you're just allowing that to fester, you're allowing that cycle to continue. Well, the religious leaders of Jesus' day just loved those who loved them and greeted those who greeted them. But do you want to be perfect? Then follow the example of our Heavenly Father who loves those who love Him and those who hate Him as well, sending rain and sunshine. And follow the example of Jesus who died for His enemies. If you start praying for your enemies, doing good to your enemies, then you will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of our own salvation that you have broken through, that you have shown us kindness and love even while we were enemies. And we pray, too, that we will follow in that example as we relate to others, uh, those who rub us the wrong way, those who are holding a grudge against us, uh, and maybe where there is a, a cold silence or worse. Lord, teach us to pray for those who are in those circumstances. Teach us to do good to those in those cold, uh, vicious cycles. Help us to be the initiators, just as you have initiated with us. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.